You're listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, June 1st, 2020. Today's episode is titled, Who Defines Truth and Reality? Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to talk about uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. The title, The Limit of Submission to Human Authority. The book of Acts is a progressively unfolding revelation about how the person and work of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and provided a basis for the New Testament ecclesia. Before he died, Jesus declared that his legacy would be to build his New Testament ecclesia. He is executing this through his followers today. Now, compared to the Old Testament ecclesia, The New Testament ecclesia will be different in many ways. And some examples of that are the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to redeem and empower people, salvation from sin and death based on grace instead of works, continuity with the Old Testament, but discontinuity with Judaism as a religion, a relationship with the creator instead of rituals to appease the creator, and inclusion of all peoples on earth in this divine blessing. At this point in the book of Acts, the New Testament ecclesia understood some of these distinctions, but not all. However, in the time, in the fullness of time, all of this will be unveiled. Though the first expression of the New Testament ecclesia had a nascent understanding of Jesus and what it meant to be his disciple, they were sacrificially committed to a high view of scripture, unlike much of the professing Christian world today. Their biblical literacy among the first New Testament Ecclesia enabled them to function with great grace as marked by unity of mind and heart, great power to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, and wisdom to view and use assets to fund the will of God in others. Now, notwithstanding this great grace, the community was tested, first externally by jealous religious leaders and then internally by greedy members of the Ecclesia, Ananias and Sapphira specifically. The former test facilitated great grace and the latter great fear. The great grace was the context for the fruit of the ecclesia, unity, great boldness to bear witness to the resurrection and wisdom for giving. And great fear was the context for the new test in Acts chapter five, verses 12 through 42. So beginning here, let's read, starting with verse 12 of Acts chapter five. This title of this particular section is called Signs and Wonders. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Now remember that signs and wonders are all about attesting to something. In Acts chapter two, we're told that Jesus did signs and wonders to attest to the validity that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. That was the purpose of the signs and wonders. Today, sometimes I think we think signs and wonders are about doing our will. It's about getting God to do something we want him to do. Signs and wonders are about attesting to truth, the truth about Christ. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade, which was a common place for them to gather. It's a place where Jesus taught. It's a place where Paul, uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter and John were going in Acts chapter three when they ran into the, the beggar, the crippled beggar and healed him. And that began the place where they began to explain the healing and how the healing was not about the power 
you know, of Peter and John. It was about the power of Jesus and who Jesus was and what he did. So the Solomon's Colonnade was a very common place for the early church, early Christians to gather and to share with others the faith that they had in Christ. Now, because of the great fear, no one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. So you see, the, the memory of Ananias and Sapphira, the reflection on what happened there was still still very much very present with them. And they was kind of like, this is a scary group of people to be part of. So they were a little reluctant to commit. So nevertheless, there was a lot of fondness for the early Christians. However, interestingly, the next verse says believers were added. Notwithstanding, some were fearful. There were others who were added. So there were some that were able to overcome the fear by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they joined and, and with the Christian community, and it increased in numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, that was probably more of a superstition that Luke just recorded here. He's not recording this to tell us this is prescriptive. This is probably just descriptive of how they saw things. They were, you know, when you're in a situation like this where signs and wonders are being done, people are being struck down dead, uh, and people are being healed. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very unsettling situation, probably something was very foreign to them as it would be to us. So they were, they were probably a little superstitious about the shadow thing. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. There was great grace here to do the supernatural to attest to two basic things. One is that Jesus was Lord and Christ. He was the Christ of the Old Testament. He was connecting the dots between what they were experiencing and the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And secondly, they were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. It was a real event. They are eyewitnesses. They're given almost like a courtroom testimony. We are sitting here telling you, swearing under oath, Jesus rose from the dead. That was the linchpin and is the linchpin of Christianity, as Paul explains with great clarity in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So moving on to the next section, then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Now, the Sadducees were the people of the first century, the religious leaders who were naturalists. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in signs and wonders. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were very naturalistic, as opposed to the Pharisees, who believed in all of those things. So the Sadducees rise up, and they're jealous. And what they're jealous about is they're jealous that all of a sudden these, this new group is formed, and they're left out. And more and more people are joining this new group, and they're left out. So it's a power play. They're jealous because they're losing power. So they have the power to arrest, and that's what they did. So they arrested the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Now, see, it's so interesting he uses the word life. Because the word life here refers to a lifestyle. It refers to a life-defining truth, an external truth about reality, about Jesus 
being now our external North Star, that which guides and directs and governs our life. So that's what they're telling about this Jesus who would now be the Lord of their life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. In other words, they were released at night. They apparently went to their homes. At daybreak, they went straight to the temple. When their high priest and those who were, were with him arrived, they convened at the Sanhedrin. They didn't know what was going on. The full council of the Israelites had gathered and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. They have no idea at this point that these uh, apostles had been released. So going on. Verse 22, but when the servants got there, that is, they got to the jail, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with a guard standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid of the people might stone them. And they brought them in. They had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, they had said that. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Remember, Peter was reminding everyone that Jesus had been put to death by the wicked hands of the religious leaders in cooperation with the political leaders, but God had raised him from the dead according to his plan and purpose. And in, in making this declaration about the guilt of the religious and political leaders, you know, he points out that they accomplished the will of God, but in doing the will of God, when you sin, you still give an account. You don't get a pass just because the will of God was done. So that's the guilt he's talking about because continually they're reminding everyone that the religious leaders, the political leaders have sinned because they crucified the Lord of glory, but God raised him up from the dead to validate the work that God sent him to do. Goes on to say, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. Literally, the word is anthropos, which is which is we translate men, but this particular translation and translates it people, which is fair. It's referring to male and female, just all kinds of people. You, we obey God. God's God's will trumps the will of man when the will of man is not aligned with God. So that's what he's saying here. You've you've commanded us to do something that God will not permit us to do. God has told us to go and be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we're witnesses of, first and foremost, that Jesus is the Christ. And secondly, that he's been resurrected from the dead to validate his atoning work on the cross. That's what we're bearing witness to. Now, remember today, when we talk about sharing uh, our witness or you know communicating our witness is almost always about our story about coming to Christ. That was not what they were doing. They were sharing about the reality that Jesus was the Old Testament Christ that was prophesied, predicted, who would come in the New Testament time, and he was resurrected from the dead as a sign to validate that indeed Jesus was the Christ, and indeed he had been 
subs, uh, the substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. So this was a this was a big message. It's a powerful message that they needed to hear. Peter and the apostles then replied, "We must obey God rather than people." The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. You see, there's no pass. You murdered him. You're guilty of murder, even though you did what God wanted done. God wanted him to die, and God used that for his purpose. You're still guilty. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's interesting the way this is phrased there at the end, that he's given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So it begs the question, does obedience you know, lead to the indwelling of the Spirit, or is it the indwelling of the Spirit that leads to obedience? And I think you know the answer to that question. We are born spiritually dead, and how can, can someone who is spiritually dead choose to obey Christ. We can't. It takes the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So regeneration now precedes our capacity to obey. He's simply pointing to the fact that if you really have had the Holy Spirit, one of the ways we will know that is you'll start obeying Christ. Now, when you start applying that standard to how you evaluate someone's profession of faith, uh, it'll eliminate a lot of people really quickly. Because we have largely in our, our paradigm of Christianity is popular today is we just accept professions of faith. I don't think that that was the way that they looked at it. Certainly, if you <clears throat> read now the first early church, the first 300 years of the, of the church's existence, they didn't believe a profession of faith. They looked for signs. Obedience was the sign they were looking for. So this is, I think, what's getting at here is the validation that someone truly was a believer was how they lived. Did they obey Christ progressively, not perfectly, but were they progressively growing, growing in that ability to obey Christ? Now, the final section of this text. Now, we have wisdom is going to come in to the Sanhedrin in the form of counsel from one of the leading lawyers of their time, Gamaliel. So this text reads, when they heard this, that is the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. You see, they're ready, to, they're ready to do the same thing to these apostles that they did to Jesus. They're angry. Crucify these people. Kill these people. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, a Pharisee, remember, was the one that they believed in the supernatural. The Sadducees didn't. And the people were holding this court at this time were the Sadducees. So the Pharisees were not too involved, but Gamaliel came in. He was a teacher of the law, highly respected. He also was, had a disciple under him by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul may have been there. We don't know that. Uh, it's very common for disciplers to take their disciplees where they go. That's a good practice to do. So I don't know. We don't have details about what may have happened, but it's possible that Paul may have been there. So Gamelia was, was arguably the most esteemed lawyer of the day. So he was highly respected by all the people, not only because he was knowledgeable, but also he was a Pharisee. And for the Sadducees to be able to get anything done, they had to have cooperation from the Pharisees. So there was a political interest here in wanting to listen to him. But so he stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said, we want to have an executive session here, take these men out. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're doing about, about to do to these men. 
Some time ago, Thutius rose up claiming to be someone and had a group of about 400 men rally around him. He was killed and all of his followers dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, another man, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census. He attracted a following. He also perished and his followers were scattered. So in this present case, and I have to believe, maybe he's thinking about Jesus. Jesus died and his followers haven't scattered. Oh, I wonder if he's reflecting about that. He doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us that, but it certainly, it looks like that may be what's in the back of his mind. So he says, in this present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it'll fail. That is so true. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. I think Gamaliel has a sneaking suspicion that this may be true, that Jesus may truly be the Christ. And if that's the case, you're not going to be able to stop this. You may have even found, be found guilty of fighting against God. And so this argument persuaded them. And after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Gamelia probably had a deep, deep secret that he didn't share, a deep conviction. And he was used of God now to share, based on that conviction, wisdom to the, the Sanhedrin here to protect the apostles from their, their, their wishing to kill them. Instead, they got flogged. Well, flogging is better than death, but they still got flogged, and they were still ordered to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, which they had been ordered to do that before, and they released him. Now, it's so interesting to see how the apostles responded. As they did before, they were excited. What they were excited about, why would you be excited about being flogged? Why would that excite you? Why would you be excited to know that you know, you've got an enemy here in these religious leaders, and it's just a matter of time before they're going to come after you again? In fact, you're going to see in Acts chapter 7, in two chapters, you're going to see what they finally do. They do finally kill someone, and they kill a marketplace minister by the name of Stephen. And we'll cover that when we get there. But right now, look at how they respond right now. Then they went out, that is the apostles, went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name of Jesus. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So they responded to this probably differently than we would. We would be very uh, probably reticent to get excited about being flogged. Uh, some commentators think the flogging implied the 39 lashes, the 40 lashes minus one, and 40 lashes was considered to be deadly. 39 was not. So they got up, they, they may have gotten 39 lashes apiece. And if so, it was a very brutal, brutal flogging. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they're excited. They lived out the reality of what James said in James 1, chapter 3, verse 3. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations, because God is using that trial and tribulation to refine you, to perfect you, so you can live more aligned with him. And that's the way we should always respond to suffering to unjust treatment, to situations where we're taxed and vexed. We need to know God is in it to do good. His good, define his way, not our good. We, we define good in a naturalistic sense, and good is what we want. Good, biblically, is what God wants, and God always wants to see us grow and mature in Christ. 
Well, let me just uh, give you a, a theological point and then an application here. So, submission to dysfunctional authority. Understanding and submitting to God's system authority is vexing, particularly when we are confronted by dysfunctional authority. Dysfunctional authority refers to narcissistic and autocratic authority figures, which we've all experienced in some way or another, some more, some less, some more severe, some less severe. All authority is ordained by God. We know that from Romans 13, and that includes even dysfunctional authority. Therefore, we're mandated to submit to all authority. The question is, is there a limit? And if so, what is the limit? Most of us want the limit to be our personal suffering. That is, we will submit until we suffer. As long as we don't suffer, we'll submit. Or as long as we like it, we'll submit. As long as it doesn't require anything of us, we'll submit. Those are our boundaries, but those are not God's boundaries. If a leader causes us to suffer pain, we want divine permission to not submit. But according to scripture, suffering alone is not a basis for not submitting. See 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Since God ordains all authority and sovereignly places each of us under authority, we are to submit to authority up to the limit where we're asked to ask or directed to violate scripture. This principle was stated by Peter in his response to the religious leaders in Acts 5, 29. He said, we must obey God rather than people. In chapter four, he said basically the same thing. He asked them a question. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you or listen to God, you decide. Since all authority is divinely ordained, even dysfunctional authority is divinely ordained and deserves our submission unless the authority figures mandate us to do something that violates the higher authority of God. Now, word of application, the limit of submission. In a culture given to humanism and its seminal value of human autonomy, submission is not esteemed. All authority is disdained. All authority, however, is divinely ordained, but not all authority figures, uh, <clears throat> figures act, or, excuse me, all authority figures act congruent with their ordination. Christians are mandated to obey divinely ordained authority with a singular exception when obedience to human authority con conflicts with obedience to God. The norm is obedience to human authority <clears throat> is obedience to God, but when it is not, divine authority trumps human authority. In other words, when human authority asks us to do things that are contrary to the will and ways of God, then God's will and ways trumps human authority. Otherwise, unless that's happening, we should obey human authority as if we're obeying God. Since the fall of man, mankind has been in rebellion against divine authority. Nevertheless, for the last 5,400 years of history, or the first 5,400 years of history, mankind gave tepid submission to God. In almost every culture, people revered a God or gods that served as external reference points to define reality. This was very common. You, you really didn't find hardly any atheism during the first 5,400 years of human history. About 700 years ago, a change for the worse occurred. William of Ockham, who was a professing Christian, posited a very toxic theory that mankind did not need an external reference point to define reality. This eliminated the need for a God hypothesis and emboldened mankind to believe that in and of himself, mankind could define reality. 
This meant that to understand physical reality did not require transcendent absolutes. Mankind could define reality using his own mind and sense perception. Consequently, the idea of God as the transcendent creator and definer of reality was no longer relevant. This ideology is called nominalism. Nominalism elevated man and denigrated God, which emboldened the bias to humanism innate in the fallen nature of mankind. Prior to nominalism, biblical authority was highly regarded even by fallen mankind. Subsequent to the shift to nominalism, a 700-year, excuse me, sub, the subsequent shift to nominalism has led to a 700-year decoupling from biblical authority, and now we have a pattern, a pattern of slowly disconnecting everything from any kind of biblical roots. So let me just give you a quick history lesson. Go through about 700 years of history very quickly. It started with, you know, in the 14th century with the theory of nominalism. It kind of percolated for a while. And then in the 17th century, you have Francis Bacon standing up and declaring that knowledge is neutral. Knowledge is now disconnected from God. It has no, no relationship to God. It didn't come from God. It's not sustained by God. It doesn't represent God. It exists independent of God and any kind of value system. Then in the 18th century, the French government decided to try an experiment. We will try to run a government based on a no-God hypothesis, a secular government for the first time that had never been done before in history. And then in the 19th century, we have the secularization of education. The whole century is the unraveling of education from God based on the knowledge is neutral premise of 200 years before. So you can see a, a theory can be posited and 100, 200, 300 years down road, you know, the implications of it become, become more clear. So the 19th century was the separation of God from all education. That laid the foundation for the 20th century, which is the secularization of God from basically all of other elements of the culture, public policy, legal rulings were disconnected from a biblical worldview. Economics was disconnected from a biblical worldview. Sexual relationships, which led to legalized abortion, was disconnected from biblical standards. The family was disconnected. Marriage, divorce, parenting, all these things were disconnected from their biblical roots. And now in the 21st century, the secularization continues now. We're basically secularizing everything. So now we've moved into secularizing sexuality, both in terms of you know, your preferred sexuality and whether or not you can redefine your gender. And secular, secular government now is expanding at all levels. So this is what's happened so far. Now, what's going to happen in the future? Well, most likely what you're going to see next is mandatory public education for all defined by the secular state. Private schools and homeschooling will probably be banned. You can still do them right now, but it's probably just a matter of time before they will be banned. You want a model for this? Look at China. China is a model. Private schools, homeschools are banned in China. It's only public education curriculum defined by the state. The next thing you're going to see, I think, is the secular churches will be the only ones that will be able to meet publicly. The secular churches are the false churches. They do not stand for Jesus is the Christ. They do not stand for the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They preach the party line, the cultural line. They do not stand for truth. The, the New Testament ecclesia that stands for truth will be forced to meet underground and to conduct business largely underground. This will lead to third world, third world poverty. 
In other words, Christianity is what undergirded the prosperity and the abundance that the United States has experienced over the last few hundred years. And the United States is just an example. Uh, this is true of any country in the world. Third world poverty comes on any country that will abandon its Christian heritage or never, never embrace a Christian heritage. They will be in third world poverty. And eventually the country will be turned over to the bondage of a dictator. Now, all of this is laid out very well in the famous uh, Titler cycle, named after Alexander uh, Titler of uh, 18th century fame. He was a Scottish professor of history at the University of Edinburgh. Um, his date of birth was 1747. His date of death is 1813. So he was an 18th century scholar, a Christian who studied the cycle of democracy and came up with a nine-step cycle. And it starts with bondage and it goes to faith. Faith leads to courage, courage leads to freedom, freedom leads to abundance, abundance leads to selfishness, selfishness leads to complacency, and complacency leads to apathy, apathy leads to dependence, and then dependence goes back to bondage. So that's the nine-step cycle. We are probably in the apathy stage right now getting ready to move to dependence. And the sign of that is the rise of socialism in our country. That will be the probably the next step that will bring us into a state of dependence where all the decisions will be made at the, this federal level and the people will give away all their freedoms in return for a perception of security, which will be a false perception. And that will eventually the government will fail because they will be unable to fund everything and there will be uh, riots and the government will probably be turned over to a dictatorship. That is the normal cycle that, that Titler came up with. And that's why we're probably gonna see a dictator sooner than later. Probably sometime during this century, there'll be a return to bondage under the rule of a dictator. All of this developed downstream of nominalism and its rejection of God and biblical authority as the external reference point for defining reality. As a result, mankind no longer sought to obey God. Instead, what we have here now is mankind seeking to obey mankind's ideas. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. The only biblical basis for not submitting to authority is when there's a conflict between human and divine authority. In this scenario, Christians must obey God rather than man, and that's why Christians will be justified in rebelling against this authority in the time that they did, just like they did in the founding of this country some 200 years ago, when they, they rebelled against the tyranny of bondage, we will probably go through that cycle again. And may we have the grace to know how to do that and do it well in Jesus' name. Amen.